This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Summit Racing's Paul Sokolis with special guests Richard and Greg Gonzalez. Here we go. Hi there. Welcome to another installment of the On All Cylinders Podcast. You got me for your host today, Paul Sokolis. And um, if you like hearing stories about the golden days of drag racing, then uh, you are in for a treat. I've got a pair of special guests today, and we're going to be talking about a very interesting individual. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for asking. And probably the best way to get started is to have you two introduce yourselves. Sure. Go ahead, Greg. I'm uh, Gregory Gonzalez. I'm the nephew of Richard Poncho Gonzalez, uh, tennis champion and drag racer. I'm also the executive director of the uh, Richard Poncho Gonzalez Youth Foundation. My name's Richard Gonzalez. I'm the son of Richard Alonzo Gonzalez Sr., alias Pancho. Yes, Pancho Gonzalez, certainly a name well-known to tennis fans, but I'm guessing most of our audience are more of the gearhead persuasion. So when we heard about uh, Pancho's drag race resume, we knew this was kind of a story that needed to be told. Um, But before we get too much further, uh, you should visit onallcylinders.com because there's a story component that goes along with this podcast. Um, Go to onallcylinders.com, type in keyword tennis into the search bar, and you'll see that article, and it's chock full of more details and and cool vintage historical photographs of Poncho, some magazine clippings, and uh, some pictures of that dragster we're going to talk about here in a second. So I I guess without any further ado, um, Richard, you can kind of pick it up there and explain how Poncho's uh, passion for tennis kind of intersected with hot rods and, and drag racing. Uh, I think it's a big part because of the combination as well. Uh, He combined uh, tennis with the drag racing. Of course, tennis was a a more serious uh, area of his life because it's the way he made his living was basically that, drag racing. There was no money in drag racing. All he did was spend money. (laughs) But uh, his love, I think, uh, developed for speed the moment he probably got around an engine that started up and and his his love for uh, the sound of an engine was incredible and he had an incredible ear for it one of the things they used to say is he played tennis so he could afford to go racing and then uh the other thing that's important though to recognize is he's probably the very first pro celebrity or big celebrity or athlete that got seriously involved in in the racing and stuff and i don't think we can stress that point enough because so much of our audience um is familiar with the the drag racing scene it's difficult to overstate how big of a deal Pancho Gonzalez was to the tennis world. I mean, specifically for the era, right? So he, he became a top junior in Southern California, and then he got banned from tennis. Uh, One of the reasons they wouldn't allow him to play junior tournaments was because he didn't go to school. All he did was play tennis. So uh, Perry T. Jones, who was the president of the Tennis Association local, would not allow him to play in tournaments if he had a chance to play tennis all day long and all the other kids had to go school go to school and couldn't start practicing until after they got out of school so it was a it was a lesson he learned and but he overcame it by putting his time and effort on the tennis court to uh you know good means it wasn't like he was out uh you know screwing around he was out doing something that it was it was his lifetime work then uh, he came back when he was about 19, and after only playing for about a year and a half, he won the U.S. Open, what is now the U.S. Open. Then he came back the next year, won it again. Back then, the slam tournaments were amateur tournaments, so he turned professional. And during the 50s, he was the best tennis player in the world for about 10 years. He played through the 70s. 
He was still at 44, one of the top 10 best players in the United States. He was, and some people do claim, he was like the Muhammad Ali of tennis. But unfortunately, because now they count grand slams to determine who the GOAT is, you know, he gets left out a little bit. But that's starting to change, and we're trying to get his story out there. But he's probably one of the top five best players in the history of the sport. Okay, so I guess the question now, um, I know we've alluded to this earlier already, but um, when did Poncho's fascination with automobiles really take off into a serious interest in hot rods and drag racing? Well, what I recall was that uh, where we we were living at the time, all I remember really was Dad bringing a a race cars home. And primarily the the first one that I recall was a 34 three-window coupe that, uh, you know, they worked on the garage in and then they had uh, old flathead engines, things like that sitting around. And I used to go in the garage and and be nothing but a pain in the butt, really, because I wanted to get my nose in everything. But I I believe uh, uh, Greg will clarify that his dad, my uncle Ralph, was originally the one that that had friends that were involved in just souping up cars, I believe. You know, they wanted cars to go fast. And uh, Dad got uh, uh, around it. That was it, really. You know, he just uh, he got the bite, and, and it took him uh, in a natural direction for, for his interests. Well, first of all, in the early 50s, he was kept off the pro tour for a couple of years. He got beaten badly the first year, and they said he wasn't marketable. So they kept him off the tour for a couple of years. And so he he used to like to uh, play cards and poker and everything. And what I understand is he won a 34, the 34 Ford playing poker. And then he gave it to my father, who at the time was only 15. And he said uh, he was one of only two high school kids that had a car at the time and uh, in his high school. But him and his buddy started trying to soup it up, and then Uncle Richard came by one day and asked him what they were doing, and then after that, that was it, you know. And uh, my dad went to Korea when he was 16. Uncle Richard took the coupe back and uh, really just got into it. Uh, Lou Bainey started building flatheads for him initially. And then uh, dad went from the flathead engine to the Cadillac engine, and of course that created more horsepower than the flathead did. But uh, then he just, you know, he got into the main crowd, the mainstream of drag racing. And uh, Ed Escadarian, well, they they spent a lot of time trying to build the camshafts for the Cadillac engine. So Dad experimented with a lot of camshafts from Ed for years until they, you know, come up with the right combinations. Ed Escadarian was right down the street from us. So that was... um, Heads knockout deal with the Cadillac engine when they first started, when dad first started running it. But he got it to, to perform just as well as any other engine that was running at the time. And it was Poncho's Cadillac engine with that Isky cam that went into the dragster that Don Rowe um, drove to the New Gas World ET record, right? Is that the event that really put uh, Poncho Gonzalez on the drag racing map? Or, or did that event put him on the map to begin with? No, I don't think he really had, I mean, in my opinion, that he really had that much national exposure because it wasn't really covered nationwide at the time like that. It was just a local thing where the record was a national record, but I don't know that his name specifically was something that was known across the nation as a drag racer. You know, he was known more for his tennis. Drag racing was just this little thing that he had on the side, and they were fortunate enough to put the engine in the car and, and uh, run the record. The record, you know, it didn't last that long, but it was a record. I don't know for sure that he was nationally known 
for his drag racing. I, uh, I, uh, my uncle Ralph and my uncle Manuel mainly were the ones that campaigned the car because of dad not being allowed to drag race because of his contract with the uh, tennis tour. The the uh, record was held in a, in another frame. There's a chassis builder named Joe Ito that Richard used knew and everything, and they put my uncle's Cadillac engine in it. I think Joe challenged him to put it in there, and then they broke the gas record at that time, the world gas record. And for those folks following along at home, this is uh, 1957, the quarter mile uh, record for gas, uh, 9.7 seconds. You know, I've met some guys that, you know, let's say we're back east or up north at the time and they'd read drag news and everything. They might have been aware. But you have to recognize, too, at that time, drag racing wasn't really that big in the late 50s. It was just kind of starting to emerge, you know. They had the first national event in 55, I think. Drag racing started mainly with a bunch of Bonneville Salt flat racers who, uh, you know, Bonneville only ran once a year. So they were looking for more opportunity to race and they developed the drag racing and they could run every weekend. The cars that were early in the drag racing were cars that were built for Bonneville. And there were some pretty nice, you know, early Roadster coupe bodies. They used to run, it was like a little belly tank thing. I'm sure, I think it was a fuel tank for a jet fighter or airplanes or something like that. And they used to, they run those, but they were really cool looking cars, you know, and they were different to us. Dad's 34 was more or less standard. You know, it's uh, original. The top wasn't chopped or anything like that. But I believe the beginning drag racers, at least in Southern California, were fellas that were looking to race more often than the once a year at Bonneville. Now, let's pivot a little bit and talk about that dragster that uh, set the record. From what I understand, you're trying to restore or recreate uh, that specific vehicle? Well, that was a, that was a previous frame that Joe Ito built. Ro, Ro, it was Roe, Ito, and Gonzalez. That was the team with Poncho's Cadillac in it. They broke the record in 1957. The chassis that we're rebuilding now was um, a secondary to the one that they were originally involved with. But it was the one that, you know, did belong solely to uh, my uncle and my dad. The engine, the dragster chassis, yeah, that they had run when they when he was just getting into the dragster. Because what happened was they had a, a bad accident. Joe Ito was driving the coupe at San Fernando, and they had just set the engine back for uh, more weight transfer, better weight transfer to the rear of the car. And when he shifted into uh, second gear, the chassis snapped in half and rolled him over the fence and almost went into the uh, wash that was uh, to the side of San Fernando drag strip. That really got, uh, I guess, Dad and Uncle Ralph involved in wanting to go faster, of course. So put the same engine in something lighter and it's going to go faster. But, you know, I think they, they wanted to have something where they could deal with any situation that arose on themselves and not have somebody else to, you know, have to go through in order to do this or do that. So just to go back, the, the record was broken with uh, the Roedo and Gonzalez dragster. And then the one we're building now was more well known as the Gonzalez brothers. As Richard said, they kind of started doing their own thing and went off on their own a little bit. But it still sounds like you're staying true to the original dragster's recipe. Is it uh, fair to assume that there's a Cadillac power plant uh, remaining between the frame rails? It, it was the same engine. It's a little bit of a different frame, but it's uh, the same engine and everything. And with this car, they ran pretty well. They, they won a lot of top eliminators. And this was a car that they went to the 58 Nationals and, and they qualified number two. And, but it was the dragster that sat in Greg's garage. 
or his father's garage, and that he came home and sat in every day after school. He'd sit in that thing on top of the trailer in the garage. So was there much left to begin with, or or where did you have to start the, the restoration recreation process? This is a complete, uh, completely different chassis. It's a brand new chassis. We went through a stage of trying to uh, track down the original car, but we, uh, we, we thought we had some uh, uh, live ends at one point, but they kind of panned out. So we decided that the only thing that they could do, because it was, you know, such a part of the, the early part of drag racing in the Los Angeles area, or I guess you say across the nation, the real pioneers wanting the little 98-inch wheelbase dragster <laughs> over 160 miles an hour was uh, quite an accomplishment. It was, it was another source of high speed for, for dad. It was kind of like when we got involved with the go-karting. You know, he was a national champion in the, the open C-class uh, go-karting, which is a twin-engine 270cc lay-down cart, the road racing cart, not the sit-up type cart. But it was the same thing. We got a little go-kart for my brother for Christmas, and dad got into it, and that was it. <laughs> we were off to the races. So it went from one engine to two engines to when we first got the car from my brother, my dad said to try to get something with a heavy chassis because my brother was kind of chunky, you know. So we went out seriously looking for go-karts all through before Christmas, and uh, we found one with about four-inch tubing rails on the side <laughs> and thought if that thing wasn't heavy enough, nothing was. But anyway, so that got started, that got us started in the karting, and, and that was another thing that went skyrocketed into space. That ran, what, 160 at Daytona, Richard? Did they time it? Oh, the cart was clocked at 160 on the back straight at Daytona, yeah, pretty fast. They were pretty amazing, much more amazing to drive than even watch go that fast. It was scarier than hell, an inch and a half, two inches off the ground running that fast. And Dad had a couple, of, he had one really, really serious accident rebuilt the cart that he had the accident in and uh, then he had another one in the rebuilt car uh, front tire blew out on it <laughs> that was it for him <laughs> you know the split guardrails they have with the racetracks well he hit as you're coming off uh, you're coming off of a short straight on the back side of the track and you go underneath a bridge and right as you come underneath the bridge there's an exit for the pit area and there's these speed bumps just before you get to the exit well, when the cart, because it's so low to the ground, when the cart hit the speed bump, dad hit the throttle of the cart to set it up to go into the turn. And the tires just RPM'd incredibly. The cart came down sideways and it just shot him into the guardrails. And he went up into the air and flipped twice and came down and landed upside down with the guardrail between the headrest for his helmet and the exhaust. The exhaust was wrapped around around the back of the cart, and if it had been three or four inches further forward, it would have taken his head right off. The guardrail would have just decapitated him. But uh, one of the gas tanks exploded, and I didn't see it happen, but it was just before coming down the main straightaway in front of the pit area. And the fellow who was, uh, he was running along with a fellow who was behind him. And the fellow came around first and we didn't see dad. And the guy just put his hand up in the air, you know, in a spinning motion. So I, I, I figured something happened and I ran down to the end of the track and uh, 
the guy that uh, pulled him off the guardrail with dual engine. So there's two exhaust pipes that run around the back of the cart behind the headrest. And he leaned on the exhaust in order to lift the cart up off the guardrail. And his poor legs. Oh, God, I, I, the burns were just incredible. I told the ambulance driver, don't let him out of the ambulance when you get to the hospital, uh, the track hospital, you know, because that's where they were going to take him. So that what do they do when they first get back to the track hospital? They let him out of the ambulance. And of course, that once he was out of the ambulance, he wasn't going to go to the hospital. And we ended up walking back to the pits. It took us about an hour and a half to walk 200 feet. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a terrible ride home. Oh, my God. We were in the motorhome. I'll never forget that. What a miserable ride that was. Getting back to the dragster. So, you know, there's been talk about a film being done on my uncle. And, uh, you know, everybody recognizes he's a tennis player, but they don't realize he's a, he's a driver and loved racing and everything. So we think, you know, having the car in there and everything would be a lot more reflective of his life. It's a big dream for all of us. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to go to the Hot Rod reunion, and I went with my dad and cousins, and they loved it. And through that, we met a great racer named uh, uh, Wayne King. He's driven about 20 top fuel cars. He's from the Bakersfield area, so he's been involved with some of the famous Bakersfield, uh, the Smokers, Warren Coburn and Miller, some of those guys. And he was able, he's kind of like our project manager. And uh, he was able to get a really great master fabricator who's built for years named Jim Hume. So Jim Hume's been doing the build. He's done a wonderful job. Uh, Richard's seen his work. He's really impressed by it. And so it all seems to be adding up to something pretty fun and exciting now. So we're excited about getting it done. But having someone like Jim and Wayne involved with the car, too, has, has been a big plus. Now, can you tell us anything specifically uh, about that Cadillac power plant? I mean, I know that's what uh, jumped right out of me when I first saw a picture of this thing. Um, if you're used to seeing a dragster with perhaps a big block Chevy or a Hemi nestled between the frame rails, this this Cadillac power plant's going to jump right out at you. It's a, it's a 1959 engine that, that, that Hugh Reynolds found over there in California. We're very fortunate to find it because he says it was in great shape. And now he's boarded out, I think, to a 406 or 409. And, you know, it's been built to run nitro. Uh, Hughes had to build up the bottom end really strong for the nitro and everything. It'll have a 471 blower on it as it did when we ran it. And uh, so it, it'll, it's a, it's a strong, strong running engine. Uh, back in the day, you know, they ran gas, though, when the NHR nitro fuel was going on. But with the cackle fest and everything, we decided to go with the, with the nitro. It stays cooler. So how's the progress on the build been going? Are, are you reaching the light at the end of the tunnel? The frame and everything's pretty much done. Uh, Wayne King has the car now, and he's, he's setting up the blower and everything, the drives and, the, and some of the plumbing and all that. So we're hoping, you know, maybe by this summer, it'll be ready to fire and then maybe be out this fall. So, so we're fortunate, you know, we have these guys. Iski provided the cam. Iski had the old camp, an old camp. <laughs> New old stock, probably pulled it right off the shelf, right? <laughs> I guess he's got everything at his place there. Hey, listen, if, what's funny, 
that here's this guy. What, what was he? Ninety eight or ninety nine? Last time I saw him at the at the meet, and he was walking through picking up cans and bottles out of the trash cans, <laughs> taking them to the recycle. He's a crack up. He's a, he just turned a hundred. Yeah, he's amazing. He's an amazing guy. Real nice guy. Yeah, it was really interesting to me to see how far back that relationship went. You know, you sent a whole bunch of um, like PDFs of of old magazine articles and stuff, and one of them included an advertisement with this dragster for Isky Cams. Oh, yeah, I think so. There was a little sketch or a little drawing of it. I don't know that there was an actual photo, but yeah. There was an ad, Richard, when they broke the record in the in the Roedo and Gonzalez. Uh, uh, Isky yes. had it on there. Makes mention of Uncle Richard, you know, and his uh, being world champion and, and performance and so forth. And uh, well, next to the L.A. Tennis Club, Isky's was, I think, Dad's second favorite place. Now, I know Poncho couldn't fully commit to drag racing with his, his tennis contracts and all, but it seems like uh, he started to pull back a little bit as the decade progressed. Can you talk about how he kind of eased away from from drag racing, at least for the, the time being? You know, they got heavy into the, they got the dragster and, you know, they were running that in 57. By 59, my uncle met his second wife and she didn't want him driving. My dad had a terrible accident at Lions in the Roadster and rolled that about eight times. So my mom was pushing against him. And so my uncle married a nice lady that was from the Hollywood crowd, and she wasn't that much into the drag racing, more the Formula One type of a person, I guess. So she didn't want him racing. So then they ended up putting the dragster at my dad's house, and my uncle would sneak over there almost every, you know, whenever he could, when he wasn't traveling on the tour and work on the car, and then they'd sneak out and try and run it at San Fernando and those kind of things. Richard told a story one time he was on the tour. He flew back into town, went to my dad's house, you know, a couple days early, goes to my dad's house, calls Richard, tells him to get over there. You know, they want to run the car. So he was sneaking around trying to do the racing, you know, when he wasn't supposed to. At that time, he was doing it as a hobby. It wasn't uh, something where he was uh, involved in, neither one of them involved in racing anymore every weekend. Uh, but they would certainly race when it was when they could. And uh, Dad was adamant about uh, racing whenever he had the opportunity. I mean, he would he would wouldn't even let his wives know he was coming back into town before he would call us and say, "Meet me at your meet me at Ralph's. We want to run tomorrow." It was scary because you didn't know what I didn't know what to say to. Well, it was primarily it was Madeline, his second wife. There was a lot of pressure he put on us. To, to do things in order to satisfy his kind of hunger or eagerness to do something. And then he had no idea what else we had to deal with because of his desire to become the best he could at anything that he got involved with, uh, whether it be racing, whether it be golf. Of course, tennis was, that's, that was his main deal, but uh, anything, it didn't make any difference. He hated to lose. And he uh, wanted to be as good as he could be at just about anything he was ever involved with. I don't know how many 70, 71, 72 Chevelles he had in his lifetime. It was his, probably his favorite car, I think, to drive around the street with the big block Chevelles. But um, anytime he bought a car, you know, you knew there was going to be something. The last car, or one of the last cars that we built for drag racing, 
was a little 55 Thunderbird that I used to drive to uh, school with my, you know, my little commuter. And um, I went from that car to another car and that car sat up at the ranch that we had in the Santa Monica Mountains. And then one day I come back and here's a big block Chevy and this Thunderbird. It was a little stock 396, but you didn't leave anything sitting around for long before he would do something with it, you know. He put, he'd put a small block on a lawnmower if he could. That was the last car, I guess, that Tim Perry built, who was a chassis builder in Las Vegas. And uh, we never even got a chance. Well, we did. We went out one night. Dad and I went out one night. One, one of the weekends, they were having the Allen King Tennis Classic, which was a pro tournament the Caesars Palace put on. And uh, the fellow that built the car, they were test driving it, you know, and there was a few things that I thought were a little squirrely about it when they were driving it. And I mentioned something to him about it, dad, about checking it out. Well, the next night they decided to take it out and run it again. And they ended up uh, a heim joint broke in the front end and it rolled at uh, about 140, 243 miles an hour right through the lights. They've got it down to a 10-15, which is, you know, pretty quick. But it was completely subframe. You know, it was just an incredible thing to look at. It was a, a great piece of uh, fabrication. That was one of the, the cars that probably disappointed him. You know, the fact that it was uh, destroyed before he could even sit in it while it was running. I'm sure anyone who's ever blown an engine on a dyno before putting it in the car can sympathize with that. You know, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I like hearing about uh, drag racing stories. You got any more poncho legends you can uh, tell us about? No, I'll just tell you, you know, we were fortunate, Richard and I, we got to go to most of the tracks, you know, Southern Calmos had 10 tracks. You know, I can remember I was really young, you know, San Fernando, Colton, San Gabriel, Fontana, Lions, Richard saw even more. The racing was just incredible. One time, my uncle and, and Richard's two brothers and I went to Lions in 67 when they had the big PDA meet. We were going to run my uncle's. He had a 68 Camaro with a 427 B-Stalker that was really, I think, one of the fastest in Southern Cal. There was another car that was comparable, but uh, they, weren't, they had so many dragsters that day, they were not allowing the stalkers to run. So he almost wanted to go to Irwindale. We stayed at Lions. We got to watch a full day of nothing but top fuel, junior fuel, and gas dragsters all day long, nonstop. And so we just got to see some great racing uh, way back in the day. Uh, the other thing I'd say in late 1959, a lot of guys were dying, and my dad lost a couple friends, and it was pretty shocking to him. And uh, one friend he lost, and he was supposed to meet the net. He was at Lions with him that night, going to meet him the next day at Joe Ito's and went over there and got the shock of finding out that his friend who he had just seen the night before was, was yeah. gone. There was a fellow by the name of, I think, Leonard Harris. Well, Mickey Brown's the guy I was talking about. That uh, yeah. yeah, there was a there was a dragster that wasn't handling that well. The story what Dad told me is they asked Mickey and my dad to drive it at Lions that night, and they both declined, and later on, they talked Mickey into it. My dad left early and went to meet Mickey the next day at Joe Ito's, and he got the bad news, and I think that really shocked the heck out of him. Whenever there was dying. an accident in the old days, you know, Lions was dangerous because of those damn telephone poles that were down the tower side, and if you, if you lost it there, Greg's dad went right in between two when he rolled the roadster. We're driving down in the push car, and dad jumps out of the car before it even stopped moving. We ran, we ran over to the car and he got down on his knees and he said, 
Ralph, are you in there? It was Ralph when the car started to roll. My uncle, Greg's dad, said he just grabbed the bottom of the seat framing and held on tight. But in those days, you know, things didn't turn out well for the spectators, um, especially at Santa Ana. The only thing they had between the spectators and the race cars were telephone poles. You know, just basically a border where you could pull your car right up to the telephone poles. Well, there was a roadster that ran one day and the guy lost control and the, the roadster hit the one of the telephone poles and it just catapulted him into the air. The roadster went over the, the top of two or three cars and uh, the safety features that they, they create now, especially the distance between the track and the spectators, boy, if they'd only known them, you know. Well, that is kind of the, the sad silver lining that a lot of those tragic accidents do result in, in better safety measures. Um, but let's pivot towards a, a more pleasant topic. The Pancho Gonzalez Youth Foundation, you can check it out at ponchofoundation.org. Uh, is kind of carrying on Pancho's legacy by by using tennis to help uh, enhance the lives of, of children, both both physically and academically, correct? Our ideas and thoughts about initially, you know, of course, Hispanic kids, but any kids that want to be involved that may not have the opportunity elsewhere or in other any other way to get involved with tennis is for us to try to provide a, a learning foundation for them, for us to give them the opportunity to at least introduce them to the game and see how they like it. We've been doing it for a little over seven years, and a lot of the kids we teach are downtown kids. And, you know, it's been a lot of fun. They're really appreciative. It's been a real joy to teach them and everything. Uh, by chance, a couple years ago, NHRA has a, a STEM program. So I took some of the kids I teach tennis to to the nationals, and they loved it. They absolutely loved it, which is kind of the timing of the dragster, too. So we're hoping to bring a little STEM learning as the educational piece for the kids and fire up the dragster form and this and that. We'll see how that develops, but it's kind of heading in that direction. And that, that's exciting, too, you know, for the kids and stuff. So <laughs> if a fire breathing top fuel dragster doesn't get you excited about engineering, then there's not much out there that will. And in a way, that's kind of why I think uh, stories like ponchos need to be told. As we evolve into the electric vehicle era, learning that historical component of sort of like the nuanced origins of automobiles and racing in particular is vitally important to the next generation. The neat thing about it is, is to bring the originality of where and how drag racing started and, um, and some of the, uh, well, different tracks, of course, in the areas that we're located. But when drag racing was, uh, you got a chassis, I got an engine, we got a driver. You know, everybody would put everything together and go racing. You know, my uncle in the area that they grew up in was, he got involved with Lou Bainey, who was very prominent in drag racing, Ed Escadarian, uh, Mr. Arias, uh, Louis Center of Anson Automotive. All these guys were just really close to each other, right, Richard? It was very close proximity. Yeah, they were. They were a big family. And their attitude about Racing was to go out and race. They enjoyed going fast, but they wanted to have a good time, too. Nothing stopped drag racing from getting to where it's, uh, it's been now for several years. And I don't think there's a better note to end on than that. Uh, we've been talking with Greg and Richard Gonzalez, nephew and son, respectively, of legendary tennis star and prominent Southern California drag racer Poncho Gonzalez. Awesome historical stories about uh, the early days of West Coast drag racing in the 1950s. Hope you enjoyed listening. And guys, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. Take care. Appreciate it. 
This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.